Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. Later on this show, we'll be talking to arts consultant and author Beth Pickens. But this show is a little bit unusual, Kim, and we should probably explain. I am doing this interview by myself. It's a little weird, and I'm sorry that I went ahead with it, but I... <laughs> I'm quite sure it's awesome. I was under the weather. Jen took it for the team. Yes. So just warning listeners, you will not hear Kim's lovely laugh on this. Um, and I just sort of winged it. So we're going to be okay. <laughs> but before we get into Beth, I wanted to talk about something that's been bothering me this week, which is I'm seeing all of these magazine covers of women over 50 and I think it's so great. And, you know, I saw Sharon Stone and there was one with Paulina Poroskova and then we we're Charlotte Rampling a couple weeks ago. And I, I think it's so great that we're showing these women, but then I was really looking at the pictures of them and I was thinking, oh, this is actually bad because their bodies are so unrealistic. I don't know if you've mm -hmm. seen any of this, but like it's Paulina Poroskova particular and who I think is amazing and Sharon Stone and they have the legs of a 22 year old. Yeah. And that's progress, I guess. Like, oh, we're supposed to be so grateful because look, we're showcasing women over 50. We're not invisible, but also really damaging because these bodies this isn't what any 50 year old woman's legs I know look like, you know, including, including we should point out the women who are in the photographs. Exactly. Exactly. So it's like, we're, we're totally sexualizing them, which is great. You know, fine. Let's not, we can, we could continue to be sexy, but it's like, there's these very like, you know, lingerie shoots. Here's my ass. Here's my legs. Here's my, this, here's me. And you know, a Teddy great. But do, we need to see cellulite. I need to see veins. Like I need us to start normalizing bodies 
as they really look. Because if not, we're just like perpetuating the same bullshit into our 50s that we always had in our whole lives. You know, I know what it's like to be an editor looking at those, look, you know, considering putting older women in the magazine or, you know, women you have to retouch a fair amount or that you will retouch a fair amount. Right. And it's a risk. Even just doing it as retouched, you know, retouched to a fairly well, that's a risk. You know, people, people, you know, when I was at Lucky, people would complain if we didn't retouch the cover enough, you know, that the model didn't look good. Oh, right. Like you're doing them a disservice by not retouching them. Like right. it's generous to retouch them. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I'm so tired of this. And especially like what I'm seeing in, in terms of these older models, which are all white, all really, really thin. Like we all know that like perimenopause and menopause, like we put on weight yeah. for the most part. I mean, unless like, unless like right now I'm on like this drastic diet or very severe diet, but like if I wasn't, if I wasn't having all these stomach issues, like I would, I was already putting on weight. Like that's just what happens to our bodies. So like, I want to see that. I want to see that as an image of post 50 beauty, like a fuller body. Like we have to start joining these worlds together. I agree with you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet a lot of money on it happening. Yeah. At least in certain venues, maybe in other venues, you know? Right. But I know I'm talking about Vogue. These, this is all like, it's Vogue and L. It's like some European Vogue. I think Sharon Stone's on the cover of this, of Spanish L. And she looks amazing, but yeah. I mean, it just, that's that for, you know, to newsstand is now, I'm sure, you know, magazines sell practically nothing on the newsstand anymore and putting older women. I mean, actually now that magazines do spend, do sell practically nothing on the newsstand, it probably is easier to put older women on the cover and take a risk because they don't rely on newsstand sales the way they did in my day. Right, right, right. Probably true. But I just, I wonder if... I mean, I guess maybe Sharon Stone wouldn't want to be photographed. Like, I guess that's where we get into the complication. I guess she, maybe she won't want to be photographed. And I bet she's counting on being retouched. Everybody's counting on being retouched. Right. right. Everybody's counting on being retouched. And I've said this before, you know, what people need to know is that every image in a magazine is retouched. Every right. single one. Right. No, you I know. know. Of men, know. of women, of food, of landscapes. It's all retouched. I just don't know how much progress it is, I guess. I guess my, my point here is like, I don't know how much progress it is to see a, a 50, 55 year old woman on the cover of a magazine who's been retouched so she doesn't actually look like a 55 year old. I agree with you. I agree with you a hundred percent. I think it's, 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 it's incremental progress at best. No, it's not really progress. And, you know, I felt the same way about like in a different way about Joan Didion being in the Celine ads several years ago. And it was like, yeah, she's in those ads because she's dead skinny. Yes. Well, that's that's also what I'm getting at is like, oh, we're only allowed we're only considered still beautiful after a certain age if we're skinny. And like that's that just has to fucking end. I would say it has to end. Yeah, it has to end. And now you're right about Joan Didion. And part of the reason why she continues to be so iconic visually is because of how skinny she is. Yep. Anyway, I'm annoyed by that this week. But 
I also have been reflecting on my other thing this week is I've been reflecting on like some positives. I've been trying to think of some positives of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Like what positive things came out of the pandemic? Because I feel like, oh, as I've been discussing, we're closer to the end than the beginning. And I realized that I learned how to cut and color my own hair hmm. and I might never go back to a hair salon. I think that's amazing. What came out of the pandemic for me? Um, I cooked more. I connected, even much more importantly, I connected with old friends I had been disconnected from. Yes, I did that too. So the, my my hair thing is my most shallow one. <laughs> but like, yes, yes. Really identifying the, who my real people are. Yeah. You know, that was a real thing for me. Like, oh, I really know who, when this shit goes down, who I really want to still know. Yep. I feel the same exact way. I feel the same exact way. I know that a lot of people feel like a lot of friendships drifted during, during COVID, but, and I think the fact that I was on my own during it made my friends be more attentive to me, which was really lovely. Well, there's, there's also a thing of like people, people, your friendship with people who they can't survive, not really seeing each other in person. Like I've had a couple of friends where I'm like, Oh, I kind of don't like you from afar. (laughs) <laughs> like I like, like I don't like your social media personality. I've had that happen a couple of times where I'm like, ooh, I need to put pause on this and mute you because I only really like you in person. If I'm only looking at you through the lens of the performance you're doing online, I don't like you at all. Yep, I totally get that. Yep. I totally get that. Well, listen, Beth Pickens has a lot of interesting things to say about life and death and you know her work is for artists but I really think that a lot of the issues she addresses they're specific to artists but they're also specific to women who are feeling irrelevant and invisible and afraid to take risks in their lives and I feel like that's that's why she's really good for our audience and also she's just great generally I'm a huge fan of hers so cool well I'm sorry I missed it and I can't wait to hear it Our guest today is Beth Pickens. Beth is an author, advocate, and advisor with a master's degree in psychology and more than a decade's experience supporting artists and arts organizations. She's also a person I respect and admire a lot. Uh, Beth's new book, Make Your Art No Matter What, Moving Beyond Career Hurdles, is out this month from Chronicle Books. Beth's first book, Your Art Will Save Your Life, was published in 2018. She also hosts a podcast for artists called Mind Your Practice. Beth lives in Los Angeles with her wife and many pets. Welcome, Beth. Hi. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. I'm super psyched to have you. Now, I should tell listeners, um, Kim was not feeling well this morning, and so she had to bow out, but I was so excited to talk to you that I didn't want to cancel or postpone. So here we are. We're going to do it together alone. I love it. I think we can handle it. We miss you, Kim. (laughs) We miss you, Kim. So just to give listeners some context for uh, what you do, your official bio says you're a consultant to artists. Can you tell us what that means and maybe how you came into it? Yes, because consultant is kind of a big empty word that can mean anything and nothing. But unfortunately, it's sort of the best placeholder I've come up with. 
So my background is in counseling psychology. I went to graduate school to become a therapist, but I didn't go the route of getting licensed and working in a practice or working in any kind of facility because I only wanted to work in the arts and with artists. So I didn't really know what would happen. I just knew I needed to go be with artists. So after graduate school, I moved to San Francisco because I specifically wanted to live in a big queer community and be surrounded by the queer artists and writers who'd been making the work that I'd been like subsisting on for years. And when I got there, I realized I, I just have to work in the arts, whatever that is, that's what I've got to do. And I started working in a number of capacities for queer arts organizations, fundraising, grant writing, um, literary tour booking, working in a contemporary art museum, a lot of different things. And then 11 years ago, I decided to start a consulting practice that would integrate all of my professional experience working in the art world with my counseling background. And the goal of this practice is to help artists move their lives and their careers and their practices in the direction that they want. So you're kind of like a coach for artists. Is that, do you feel like that sometimes? I don't ever say coach because <laughs> I think coach refers to a particular kind of training program and that's not my background. Oh yeah. And, and like so, life coach is so gross. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's totally fine. I'm so specific with language because I, you know, sometimes people will refer to me as a counselor or a therapist, but those are legal, those are legal definitions that refer mm -hmm. to licensure. So I'm always really careful to say my, I have a counseling psychology degree and my background is in counseling, but I operate as a consultant. So I'm not, I never sought licensure and I only work with artists and what I'm doing with them absolutely draws on all of my counseling training. So it's very similar to talk therapy. So, so your clients, who are your clients? Tell us about your clients. What, what kind, like when you just, when you say artists, that, that can mean so many different things. Who are your yeah. clients specifically? They are artists and writers who make work across every discernible and unknowable discipline. They make work all over the place, often multi and interdisciplinary across phase of life from early emerging to professional and they live all over the country and internationally. And they range from people who have, all, who make all of their money from their creative life and people who make zero money from their creative life. But my clients are people who have a profound, deep need to make their creative work in order to process being alive, that that is a central theme in all of their lives. I love that so much. And one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on today is because though your work is primarily geared toward artists, I feel like there are so many parallels between the challenges creative people face throughout their lives and those that women specifically encounter as they hit middle age, you know, things like, mm. am I irrelevant? Does anyone care what I have to say? And I'm wondering, like, how do you think about that stuff? What is your directive to people who are feeling, I'm imagining you come across this a lot, people who are feeling like they're stuck or the world doesn't care about your work, which is something we really come across at this stage in life. Right. Yeah. And I think it's exacerbated by living in modernity in the digital age. I, one of the things I love about working with artists and my clients tend to be women, queer people, trans people, artists of color, and other people who have and have been and feel marginalized by the dominant culture. <laughs> so like, those are my people, weirdos who feel like the dominant culture is not for me. And that's been my life experience too. It's just a tacit rejection of dominant culture since I became an adult. And so 
in artists' lives, the thing that makes it so important to me is artists are creating other worlds because the one that's presented to them doesn't work for them and it doesn't reflect their life or experience whatsoever. And so I think that for artists and writers, they actually possess the tools and skill set and ability to create these other ways of living and being and relating that can kind of sort of sidestep or have an alternative way of thinking and seeing and being from the dominant culture that that tells people that there is such a binary continuum of relevancy and irrelevancy. It's like queer people and, and feminists who were all who were like, no, that culture was never for me. The dominant culture never was for me. So I can't become irrelevant because it was never relevant to me. And I know that's been my experience. And I see that reflected back at me by my clients all the time. Yeah. And I, I think that getting older, being being middle-aged or an older, even older woman does become a sort of marginalized because uh, marginalized community because ageism is real, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, absolutely. And how do you talk to your clients about their fears about getting older? Right. Well, and I got to tell you, artists will come to me at 32 and say, it's too late for me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's never too late for anybody (laughs) with anything. Like these are all lies. These are constructs. Ageism is real and we can reject it. We can create other ways of being and we have to, in fact, or else that's what's available to us. And that is not okay. So I, the recommendation I give to any artist, regardless of their age, but people who feel the ageism creep, whether real or perceived or both, the first thing we do is look for people who aren't living that way. Look for people older than you who are living lives that you're inspired by. I often go back to a podcast that I love called Two Old Bitches. And it's by a friend of mine, Idalise Malave. She was actually an early reader of my book. And she has a podcast with one of her best friends where they just interview women who are over 60 from their 60s to their 90s. A lot of them are artists and activists and movement workers. And they talk to them about how they keep reinventing their lives, not in a way of to be relevant, but in a way that's interesting to them. And when I listen to that, it is such a booster shot to my soul of like, oh, yeah, like this, the messaging I'm getting about getting older, it doesn't have to mean what it's telling me it means. Ageism is real. There are documentable, research-driven data to show us that it's real. And so are so many other systems of oppression that we have to undermine and undo all the time. And this is one of them. But the ageism thing, that that affects different industries differently and certainly different art disciplines differently. For example, in dance and choreography, People who are socialized female or have female assigned bodies, they are told they're old at 40, like you're kind of done being a dancer. And so what's really amazing is to then go find women choreographers who are still working and still doing things beyond that and then supporting them. So I think it's like finding the people who are countering that narrative and go be with those people. Right, because there's always, I mean, the, the, the rules are made to be broken, but there's always a door in, right? I, I, I really feel this way. And I really feel like my, my life has, my life experience has borne this out that if I, if I take on ageism, just like the way I took on in my twenties, like, oh my God, nobody's going to want me because I don't have the right pedigree. There's always something to take on that. There's always a limiting belief to take on right? Sure. Sure. I mean, we're never right. 
like we're never okay. And capitalism relies on that <laughs> completely. Not to be so reductive, but it's like when you're 25, you're not okay. Then at 30, you're not okay for a different reason. Same at 35, same at 50. It's like, we're never okay according to these dominant models of living because they, they require us to feel that so that we will keep buying into whatever they're selling us. Right. I mean, so a lot of, so your book lays out, it's so beautifully laid out the, the new book, make your art no matter what. And by the way, I liked your first book too a lot, but um, Thank you. The, the first book is just so this, the, the, this book, make your art no matter what is just so clear and direct and how it sort of moves through all of these different obstacles. And one of the chapters is about fear, which I think is is so pervasive and it gets in our way so much more than we even realize. Do you want to talk a little bit about fear and, you know, what, how you talk to people about fear and imposter syndrome and sort of the basics of like why we won't even begin? Mm -hmm. I think it takes us a long time to even identify and unearth some of our fear. Like some of it we can grasp at and point to and say, oh yeah, that's a fear. That's a fear. That one, I believe that one's silly. That one's maybe baked into me through evolution, but there's so many fears that we don't necessarily know yet is a fear. We just believe it's sort of an essential truth. And so when I'm working with my clients, what I'm trying to do is help unearth their narratives that are deep inside of them that they may believe or be living as though those are unmovable truths so that we can hold them up for inspection and just decide like, is there any merit to this? Is there anything there? Or when we look behind it, is it just a billboard and there's nothing behind it? So I think the process of dealing with fear, grappling with fear is first just identifying some of the deep, deep fears that we live with that are just an ongoing tape playing in our minds just constant thoughts. Then once we can actually externalize them by speaking them out loud or telling them to someone or writing them down, then we can start to do something about them. And I don't think we ever have to get rid of fear because I just don't think that's possible. I think some fears will fade, but we just have fear. It's just a human experience. It's completely normal. But what we can do is navigate around it. Once we identify, there it is, except, okay, I've got this fear. It doesn't mean I'm bad. doesn't mean I'm weak. It just means I'm human. That is it. So now what can I do? What can I do to, to, to have an experience or a life that I want that is contradictory to what this fear is telling me? And that is something that nobody ever has to do alone. You don't, we don't have to figure out anything alone. This is a thing that can be done with a friend, a loved one, a therapist. Certainly this is something I'm doing with my clients all the time is unearthing these fears, holding them up for inspection, and then figuring out some tools to navigate around them. And imposter syndrome completely, like just everybody's got it. And if anybody says, no, I, I don't have it. I, I don't usually believe them because it's again, just a normal human experience. And once I think we can admit to the ubiquity of it, that all people have it, then it doesn't have to stop us so much. Like, oh, this is just, this is mine, or it comes up in these moments. And that's just another fear that I'm not okay, or I can't do something. And completely normal in a daily experience for people. Well, it's funny because I think that the fear or feeling fearful there's some shame surrounding it, right? Because of especially the messaging of the past decade of we're supposed to be confident and, you know, you know, you see it, you can be it and all of it. And I wonder if it's the shame also, it's the combination. It's like a lethal combination of shame and fear. And one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot 
is just accepting like, oh, this is here and I can, I can examine it and I can see it here and I can keep moving with it. I don't have to eradicate it. I don't have to feel ashamed of it. Right. I mean, there's the, the Tara Brock thing of like, I heard Tara Brock, you know, the meditation teacher lady, mm-hmm. I she, the other, I, I, I heard her say the other day, I consent. I consent to these feelings. I, 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 I can be present with these feelings. And I do find that as I'm getting older, if I just kind of examine the fear, it moves more quickly through me and away than if I tense up, if I'm ashamed of it, if I try to hide right. it, if I pretend if it's fight not it. there. Yeah. If you fight it. Exactly. I think there is something in like consenting to whatever emotion you're having about your work and just sort of letting that emotion come up and letting it pass. It's a very Buddhist way of being with your work, but I think it's, I think it's profoundly effective. I agree. I agree. Radical acceptance, just surrendering to these are my feelings and feelings and fear they're real, but they're not necessarily true. So they have to be dealt with and accepted and, and, and acknowledged, but that doesn't mean they're facts. And once we can pull those two things apart, that this fear I have is real, but it might not be true. Then I have a lot of choices. It sort of restores choicefulness to me. It's not necessarily true. Therefore, there might be a way out of these woods that I find myself in mentally. Right. And like the negative self-talk, you can't attach to it. It's going to come up. You also can't sometimes, I mean, I don't feel like I can eradicate it. It's like, it's at this point, like 45 plus years of like messaging from the world and trauma Mm -hmm. and everything else. Like it, there's no way it's just going to go away. Like it's just not like poof, poof, I'm fixed. Right. You know, right. like, and I don't think that has to be the goal that right. we don't have to, I, I don't like any kind of, I, I sort of reject any narrative that we have to vanquish or conquer anything. I think it's, we just, I think gentle is what works, not vanquishing. So we can sort of gently accept something that just like you said, it, it promotes something moving through us when we can just gently accept. These are the thoughts I'm having. This is the fear I have. This is the shame I have then there's movement that's possible. It's not this strangulating fight and it just returns you to being human. You're just having a human experience like every human around you. And now a word from our sponsors. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin. And I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. 
But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. Sarah. It's a once daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule essenced with soothing vanilla. I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry leading sustainability standards. You know, I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess, is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Uh, okay, so you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. And we're back. How do you help people find what they want to do? Is that something that, that you come across? Because I feel like a lot of people are like, I I know I want to pivot. I I'm I or creative people, let's say, I want to pivot. I've been sort of hiding my creative soul in these like mm-hmm. soulless jobs for a long time. And how do you help people sort of realize like their passion, their dreams, their whatever they've really wanted to do, which I think is so important, especially in like, oh my God, I'm in the second half of life. Mm-hmm. What the fuck else? What do I still want to do? You know, how do you help right. people identify that and then then sort of go for it? Yeah. And this is true for so many, so many people I've encountered. And I think the the very first thing I do with everyone, and this includes people who aren't sure what they want next is first, we have to tend to all the different parts of their life and identify what has been undertended. So for example, when I, after my intake session, I do a long intake session with my clients when we first begin working together and I have them first do some writing that's assessing a few different parts of their life. I ask them to think about their lives creatively, professionally, spiritually, financially, and in terms of relationships and intimacies of all kinds. So first I want to assess what are all the different parts of a person's life and identity and what is being cared for and what's being neglected. Because everybody has areas that they've been under tending and we first have to tend to them because artists, I think that, I think the, my entry point in for an artist to help restore their practice to them and then build whatever they want to build on top of that restore, restored practice is a holistic harmonious life, not every day is going to feel that way, but for people who are very lonely and disconnected, we have to increase their intimacy and relationships. We have to focus on that. 
And for other people who have a lot of financial terror, we need to deal with that because that is going to constrict their choices. And for people who've been avoiding any kind of creative practice, we've got to grapple with that fear and just reestablish a practice in a very gentle way. So, and I think as a person starts to tend to the many different parts of their life and who they are, more is revealed to them what they want, their desire, and their ability to pull apart what am I good from, from what do I want, which is a very helpful distinction, that can become clear as they start to tend to all the many different parts of the self. Wow. Yes. (laughs) Yes. That that feels right to me. Yes. Um, um, I want to talk about something else that you wrote about in the book, um, which is that a big thing for me, and I'm really inspired by the way you're managing this, which is I want to talk about, I know you've talked about it a lot, but I'm going to make you talk about it again. I want to talk about death. Oh, um, I love it. You, you <laughs> the surprise, I to, I, it's my surprise I, hit of the season. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to die and so am I. My number one hit. It's so amazing because really um, you dedicate an entire chapter to the book to, to death and God. Um, mm-hmm. And I realized when I not only read this chapter, but I'm listening to you talk about this, how much my fear of death, like actually keeps me paralyzed in a lot of ways. And you have a regular death acceptance practice that I just, I want you to talk about, because I know you consider this a form of self-care and I, I, I really want to hear you tell it again, please. <laughs> sure, sure. I got into death as it were. I started considering the fact that I will die about seven years ago when feminist mortician, Caitlin Doty had her first book come out. It was, it's called um, smoke gets in your eyes and other stories from the crematory. And I heard her, I think on fresh air, cause I was an early podcast adopter. And <laughs> so I was definitely listening to every fresh air when it was a sparse uh, land, landscape for podcasts back in 2014. And her book introduced to me the concept of death acceptance and the death positive movement, this group of scholars and thinkers and death care workers and philosophers and artists and writers who believe that our dominant culture's death denial and death refusal has catastrophic, catastrophic impacts on our daily lives and animates violence and war and climate degradation and dehumanizing ourselves and other people. And that was sort of my entryway in. So for the past seven years, I have taken in as much as I can ongoing about death and dying, books, podcasts, um, classes, contemplative practices in an effort for me to grapple with my own completely natural terror about death and dying. And that has yielded a lot because for me on the other side of death and dying is the knowledge that today I am alive. Who do I want to be and how do I want to live? And that opens up everything for me. And, and, and this practice has also been enormously helpful when there's been death in my life. I had my older brother died very suddenly a few years ago and all of this death practice helped me navigate the actual funeral process and being able to go in and identify his body when no one else in my family felt emotionally willing to do that. It sort of prepped me for the reality that everyone I know will die, me included. And some days I have a terror about that. And some days I have a more peaceful acceptance and it's a one day at a time practice. And so for the past year, well, in the current 
Jewish year, which started fall 2020, I've adopted this, this practice that integrates a spiritual prompt that my rabbi gave and my ongoing journey with death and dying. I have a daily death kind of journal. It, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful Jewish calendar, daily calendar. And every day I pause and I just write something down, like a realization about my own death or other people's death or the fact of death. And it's just this everyday pause that clocks me back into the fact that I am mortal and everyone I love is mortal. And that moment of pause gives me a lot of openness and again, restores choices back to me and helps shrink down whatever it is I'm tripping over. So as of late, the past few months, it was definitely my new book coming out. And will it be popular? Will people like it? Will it get likes? All of these things. And my death practice helped bring me back down to earth of, it doesn't matter. I wrote a book. I'm still going to (laughs) die. You know, like I I wrote a book and I'll die. So can I, can I hold a little (laughs) bit less tightly any of my fears about how it will do on social media? And it does, and it doesn't, you know, like I said, it varies day to day how it hits me, but this ongoing practice now, and in the fall, it'll be a year of doing this, um, has had huge positive consequences for me. Do you think that thinking about death has made you feel more peaceful about aging itself or the aging process? Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And it makes the things that I do, it changes the motivation. So like, for example, I love Botox. I'll get Botox forever. I'll dye my hair forever because I've been dyeing my hair since I was 14. It, It like returns these things to me as like body modification fun, that it's like a thing I get to do because I want to, and it's fun and it's interesting. I get to play with my body rather than what does the world think of me? Not, and again, this is a one day to practice, but knowing, doing my ongoing death contemplative work, really helps me surrender to the fact that I am aging. And in LA, I felt it come on in my late thirties. If I lived somewhere else, maybe I would have felt it else at a different age, but in LA, because it's such a youth focused dominant culture here, I totally clued in, in my late thirties to the fact that, oh, I'm no longer the target for any of this, this referring to all of the dominant culture. Like they don't mean me anymore. And in my twenties and thirties, it was me holding up my middle finger saying like, well, fuck you. I don't want your culture. And now they're like, oh no, we don't mean you. And it was an interesting (laughs) realization and, and just reminded me to come back to like, okay, so, so now what the culture I've been rejecting no longer is asking anything of me. And so I get to continue on this life path of like going to find my people and death practice absolutely tears down, turns way down my, my fears of getting older, because if I'm lucky, I will get old. If I'm lucky, I will live to be at old age and do many wonderful, interesting things until I'm 70, 80, 90, a hundred. No, I, I have been feeling the same way. I am um, last, last week I had an old, old and dear friend, the kind of friend that you have in your twenties, like in their early twenties that you can never really replicate that kind of intimacy. You know, you're just mm. like so crazy. And I hadn't talked to her in years and her husband reached out to me on Instagram to tell me that um, he'd just taken her home for hospice. Oh and I, um, I've been thinking about it so much. She's my age and I, I couldn't, I couldn't talk to her, you know, cause it's, she's, she's that far gone. So I, I made her mm. a video and I looked at all these pictures and 
it, you know, it's so cliche, but it was so level setting for me because I've been so pissed off about perimenopause. And so mm. like, what the fuck? My body feels like a weird science experiment. You mm. know, am I, cause you, my body is glitching so hard that it almost feels every day. Like I'm dying, you know, which of course mm. we are dying, but, but I did have that moment of, oh my God, I get to go through perimenopause. My friend Vicky will not get to go through this. This will not happen for her. And it was, it stopped me in my tracks. And it's really, you know, I hope that it stays with me, but I think that it will stay with me if I am mindful of it and do something like a death practice. That's why I love this so much, because I think that when we are faced with our mortality, it's when we, when we really live the best. It's when we get things into perspective in profound ways where we're like, oh, wait, maybe this is enough what I have too, you know, because that, that seeking is so insidious, right? And anyway, I don't know why I just shared that, but I've been thinking about that oh, a beautiful. lot. I'm so sorry. And I'm so glad that Vicky gets to, it sounds like die at home with her husband. And her two kids. Yes. Oh, yes. I'm yes. so grateful that that is going to be their experience, that she will be with the people she loves in the place she wants to be, I imagine. Totally, totally, totally. And that's Um, so painful. That is so, so painful. Well, there's always, you know, I've had, um, I haven't had a lot of really young, my parents had me really young, um, but I've, I've had a lot of um, suicide and there is a, there is a real Mm-hmm. there's a really profound thing that happens when you're the survivor, when you maybe went through a similar experience as somebody else and they didn't make it out, you know, that, that survival, the survivor, it's not only guilt, but I don't even know if it's guilt. It's just like, Oh, well, I'm still here. What am I going to do about that? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> like, what am I going to do about mm-hmm. that? Yeah. I have this life. I made it through that thing. I didn't, that turn didn't come for me that I didn't swallow me up, you know? So I'm, I'm, I'm here. And how do I, how do I live my life in a way that feels meaningful and intentional is yeah. 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 You know, and, and the death practice really is, it really helps me value life, mine and other people's so much more intensely. I I think it has had a profound impact on the anti-racist organizing I'm committing to because it, I have such a more uh, in sort of like plugged in understanding of how some lives are valued and how and when, and when they're not and who is not. So it actually death practice has helped me stay very committed to um, I'm, I'm part of an organizing uh, collective in Los Angeles called White People for Black Lives. And this practice, it's sort of like when I'm freed up and restored to the day of I'm alive, I'm here, who do I want to be? What do I want to do with my life? Then it, it, it sort of allows me to come back to and other, and how can I be of service to other people so that they get to live too? How can I be of service? I was thinking about that. I was thinking about that you made as we were talking and as I've been thinking about this interview, I've been thinking about the how much you love artists and how much you love art and artists. And I mean, you are an artist because you're an author, 
but really your life is spent in service of other people and in support of other people. And I imagine that is probably a lot. Sometimes that's a heavy load to bear, but imagine there's, it feels really meaningful. So meaningful. Well, it feels like a symbiotic relationship. So I don't identify as an artist because my definition of artist, my working theoretical understanding and my practice is artists and writers are people who are deeply, profoundly compelled to make their creative work because it's how they process being alive. And I am very clear. I write books for money as part of my job. Like that is, I would, I'm not writing books. I don't enjoy it. I don't feel compelled to write. Um, but the artists in the world it's like you all make things that I need in order to live. And I clue, I clued into that in my teen years, understanding that art is what would help me survive and see myself reflected back at me and create all these alternative worlds I keep referring to. And so I, I feel as though if I can help as many artists as possible make their work, their lives will be better. And then they will put work out in the world that will make so many other people's lives better. So it has this very big ripple effect. And if I can be a part of that and be of service to any artist to help them keep making their work and then share it, it feels like I'm doing, the, the circle is complete because then I get to benefit from whatever it is they're putting out into the world. I want to talk about success a little bit. Um, I think we have such a warped understanding of success and these big fantasies about how like, you know, quote unquote, conventional success will make us feel, um, Mm -hmm. which these expectations, they not only lead to craving success in an unhealthy way, but also a lot of disappointment, right? How do you think about managing our expectations about accomplishment. We can't fill something up inside of us with something on the outside. So I have clients who are very famous, who have lots of money, who have had all of the awards and fellowships and big shows and opportunities that in their discipline demarcate success. They are not happier. So when that, when that veil was lifted and I could report that out to many other people that did, you know, (laughs) we can't (laughs) fix something on the inside with external things. I'd been doing that my whole life too. Just like this gaping hole inside of us that we pour like awards or degrees or opportunities or success or other people's praise. It's just this bottomless pit that never gets filled. So once I understood that the hardest thing for most artists that I see is not getting the successful thing. It's enjoying it every time over and over and over again. A client will think, well, if I can just get this, whatever that is, money, a particular fellowship or grant, a certain opportunity out in the world for performance or exhibition or a publisher, then I will feel blank. I know that we have to do some work there because what is being set up is a feeling of profound emptiness once they get that thing, because that's what's going to come. If we are trying to change our insides with outside things, we will feel empty. We feel the initial high and then that wears off. So one day, Heidi Klum said it best, one day you're in, the next day you are out. And that is true with fame and fortune too. And when I moved to Los Angeles, this is this was a very helpful to learn early on by having a, a spouse who works in entertainment and seeing sort of secondhand observation of the illusion of fame and, and money and what that's supposed to do and what it's supposed to mean. And what happens as soon as that gaze is off of a person is they return to who, however they were feeling before it happened. 
So with my clients, I'm trying to, I'm trying to create a situation where they can actually enjoy the opportunities and success that they get, because that is truly harder than getting the thing. And it happens over and over and over again for them. Well, right. Because it's so, the victories are so hollow because that kind of attention, because fame is disgusting (laughs) because that kind of attention that, right. That outside attention means nothing to who you are inside. How do you, how does that happen? How do we enjoy our accomplishments, enjoy the process? How, how? I think through spiritual practices. (laughs) So I, I, I think, I think we have to have a spiritual interior, whatever that means to a person, however they get there. And when I say spirituality, I'm referring to anything that connects a person to themselves, to other people and to something bigger than them. And for some people, that's the major world religion. For other people, it's magic. For other people, it's contemplative practices. But I think the more we can build a spiritual interior with ourselves and improve our relationship to ourselves throughout the arc of our life, then the good things that happen, we can enjoy them without holding onto them tightly. Just like when bad things happen, we can go through them without holding onto them too tightly. But it's sort of like not holding on to any of it too tightly. And the, the interior, the more work we do with the interior, the more we can sort of enjoy anything that's passing by us in the exterior. So, right. So not attaching to the positive or the negative is, I, I, is what I'm hearing, right? Right, right. Which kind of leads me to something that I want to, I definitely want to address is I think one of the reasons that we can be afraid of putting ourselves out there, putting our work out there, our art is because feedback can feel really overwhelming and scary. Um, particularly if you have some trauma in your background, you know, criticism can be really triggering. How do you think about criticism? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I, I went through this. I, I've gone through this with both of my books myself. I think it is so hard to detect. It's already, even if you're not on the internet, and I think everybody's on the internet who's listening to this, but even if you're not on the internet, it is such daily work to detach from other people's opinions of us or what we think their opinions might be. We're ruled by that. That is a daily tool set that we have to rely on to detach from what we think other people think of us or if they're thinking of us. And the internet, I, you know, I don't think our brains have, I don't think our brains are equipped to deal with thousands of people telling you what they think of you every moment of the day. Like, I, I don't think we're really equipped to deal with that, but because social media is still so new, we don't have longitudinal information about it yet. I'm sure the studies, when longitudinal studies are revealed in 20, 25 years, none of us will be shocked to find that turns out it was bad. Turns out it affects people negatively. (laughs) Turns out we shouldn't have all of our lives on the internet so much and we develop unhealthy relationships to it. Yeah, like we can all feel it. We just don't have the evidence, the hard evidence pointing to it yet, but it's coming. And so for myself and for my friends and for my loved ones and for my clients, I tell them for one thing, get off the internet as much as possible, as much as possible. And to use social media for what it can be good for, which is essentially a marketing tool. And to never forget, these are just corporations that are making money off of us. Just like credit card companies, they're not your friend. They're there to make money off of you. That's it. And they will turn on you in a dime to get that money. Like Twitter could have shut down Trump's account at any point and they did it after he was out of office. They are there to make money. And so I I think it helps me to always have that in mind that when when I'm using social media to market my book or I'm looking at what other people are doing, I am seeing a a marketing tool built to be addictive 
And all marketing is designed to make me feel bad at myself about myself. So I will spend money on something that that's all like, that's the basis of it. That's the history of marketing. People can read the Chiquita banana history book and banana republics. Like that's what marketing and advertising is for. And it's just a marketing and advertising company. And so that sort of like gives me a little perspective that then I can share, but I think we, it's again, a daily practice of detaching from what other people are saying or thinking or what we think they're saying or thinking. And for some of my clients, that means I have to get them off of social media, which means they either need to temporarily pause their accounts or they need to pay somebody to manage it for them, or they need to do the, the apps where they preload all their content and then get off of it for a week. Half of my half of my conversations are getting people off the internet. That's a big part of my job. A very big part of my job is getting people to um, get off their phones and get off of social media for bits of time. I like what you say in the book, though, about the difference between practices that are restorative versus numbing, mm-hmm. and how we need a balance of both. Because the phone can be numbing, sort of binge watching can be numbing, but there can be some usefulness in those things as well. Absolutely. It has its numbing activities have their place. I just don't want to confuse them with things that are restful and restorative, which do a different thing. So numbing, I think of numbing activities, like after work, if I've had a long day and I'm doing crossword puzzles on my New York times app while a TV show is on with my wife and our dogs, that's not restful and restorative. It's just numbing. I'm sort of like, it's like a placeholder. I mean, it's an enjoyable placeholder until it's time to go to bed. (laughs) And then times when I actually want restful, restorative things, those are a completely different set of activities. And what they do is actually refuel me. They, they fill me back up with energy and with life force. And those are just, I think for each person, it's useful to distinguish which one is in which and neither without making them good or bad, simply that they do different things. But that if what you're looking to do is refuel and rest and recover, then numbing activities won't do that. Right, right. And there's there's nothing there's nothing in the phone that's going to like restore your bad feelings about Instagram, right? It's like no, just keep going no, back to the not. well. Like you keep going back to the well, and the well is just keeps giving you the same dry, bad feelings. Yeah. Right? Then you just switch to a different app and you're like, now I'll hurt myself with this one or I'll try to <laughs> exactly. app escape. And again, escapism and, and numbing, I think they have a place in modernity. I think they have a place in our current day culture, but I do think that it's useful to reduce one's time with those and to understand which is which in a person's life. Thank you for your book, for your work, for everything you do. I think you are a remarkable person on this planet, and I'm very grateful for everything that you've put out into the planet. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm such a fan of the pod. I'm a listener. It's so exciting to be on podcasts that I listen to. It's like, talk about celebrity. <laughs> I I was so excited to have you. I was like, oh my God, she has a book coming out. Definitely bugging her. <laughs> like, for thank sure. Thank you. Um, where can people find you? Because I want them to find you and your work. Yes. Uh, my website is bethpickens.com and that's where you can learn all the things, the books, the homework club, the podcast, all of it. And I'm on Instagram, although I will be on a summer hiatus, but you can find me at Beth Pickens Consulting. Thank you so much, Beth. This was great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Everything is Fine. We are your hosts. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. 
Our producer is Natalie Rivera. If you want to support our show, please join our Patreon at patreon.com backslash everything is fine. And be sure to rate it and review it on all the platforms, which really makes a difference. You can follow the show's Instagram at EIF podcast, email us at everything is fine, the podcast at Gmail, and you can find Kim on her blog, girlsofacertainage.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.